So it might not seem like it, but it's the middle of the day here in Beijing. The air is so polluted that it's darkened the sky. Most of the progress towards the environment and saving it and getting rid of carbon, etc., has been done on a local level. Some people with the goal wow. of making energy both cheaper but also completely clean. And so, with the right innovation. Uh, clean energy is actually cheaper than dirty. World's energy. biggest energy agencies believe the oil market will rebalance by the second half of this year, but there are still questions about price. Brent crude is down by more than. We will unleash the power of American energy, including shale, oil, natural gas, and clean coal. What we're going to do, folks, is going to be so special. Special. Hello and welcome to Off the Charts, the podcast of the Energy Policy Institute at the University of Chicago. I'm your host, Jeff McMahon. Today we're talking with Amy Harder, an energy reporter for Axios. Amy has been at Axios since April 2017, reporting on energy, environmental, and climate change issues in the context of congressional legislation, regulations, lobbying, and international policy affecting the United States. Amy also writes a regular column, The Harder Line, for people interested in domestic and international energy policy. Prior to working for Axios, Amy was an energy reporter for the Wall Street Journal for three years, and before that, she spent nearly seven years at National Journal, the last four-plus years of which she reported on energy and the environment. And she is the inaugural journalism fellow for the Energy Policy Institute at the University of Chicago. Welcome, Amy. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. So recently you wrote a column about your own reporting and the increasing attention that it's paying to climate change. You've long been an energy reporter. You're writing more and more about climate change. And in the column you mentioned that some readers and sources are asking you why that is. Um, so let's dive into that. In the column, you mentioned several reasons that your coverage and media coverage generally is more focused on climate change lately. The first reason you mentioned is uh, Trump. What is Trump doing to drive coverage of climate change? President Trump is not acknowledging the scientific consensus that exists on climate change, namely that uh, most scientists uh, say that uh, greenhouse gas emissions are rising um, too much and um, are increasing global temperatures. And so with Trump uh, not acknowledging that and even going so far to consider uh, creating panels to dispute that consensus, that's newsworthy. And it's important, I think, for the media to point out when the when the president is inaccurate on this issue or any issues. But climate change in particular is such a complicated topic, a lot more than some of the other issues that dominate the headlines. And so I try to cover this issue from a really non-alarmist uh, pr perspective where we can provide readers what's right and wrong without going further with any sort of agenda. Do you have a sense of why Trump has taken that stance? Oh, you know, that uh, gets into so many things about, uh, you know, where the Republican Party writ large is on, on climate change. I think it's a couple of reasons. One, I think it's worth pointing out that Trump himself 
has actually supported action on climate change in the past. Uh, I don't think this is an issue that he's particularly wedded to, but he's he's taken sort of one of the the more uh, extreme positions within the Republican Party to, to question the science and to mock it. Um, basically, the only thing we hear about uh, climate change from the president is through tweets when he just talks about how we could use some global warming when it's really cold. Um, and so there's a lot of reasons why the Republican Party has been absent from this debate for the past decade. One big reason why is because climate change is a very complicated and global and difficult problem, and most policies to address the issue will necessarily need some sort of additional government role, and that can be hard for a lot of Republicans to acknowledge. So it's hard to present solutions that can address the issue significantly while remaining, you know, a small government type Republican. So you also mentioned that uh, the science is more advanced than it was earlier in your career. Do you think that there were soft areas in the science a couple of years ago that have firmed up? Oh, no, not necessarily. What I meant by that is there's just been a lot of reports uh, that have been highlighting it. So these these different factors sort of um, lay on top of each other. So, so you have Trump, who's uh, rejecting the science and gutting a lot of regulations at the EPA, which is galvanizing a public, um, some part of the public, of course, not, not the entire public, because America is quite divided on these issues. But more and more people are concerned about the environment and climate change, polling shows. And then you layer on top of that the scientific reports that have come out by the United Nations and even the federal government, in fact, under Trump, has issued reports. And so I think it's the combination of those two that have really uh, accentuated this topic in the last couple of years. And you've also mentioned that we're seeing more impacts, things like wildfires and flooding. Is, does that have an effect on coverage because it bolsters confidence in the science, or does it in some other way make climate change more newsworthy? I would say it's both. Uh, I think people are experiencing uh, more extreme weather more frequently. Now, I'm always careful to to not have to not go too far in the, in that realm. I mean, what scientists are able to directly contribute to rising temperatures is a really tricky business. And it's it's happening more and more. It's what's called attribution studies. But but nonetheless, not getting too deep in the weeds on the science, um, people do uh, think more about climate change when they're experiencing extreme weather. And so that's something that I think, number one, does bolster the science, and number two, makes people more aware and more concerned. And, and it's not even necessarily just extreme weather. It's things like, you know, impacts on agriculture in the Midwest, for example. So, uh, you know, even those more mundane, but still, you know, from an economic and lifestyle perspective, could be significant. I think those are some of the factors driving um, an increasing public awareness. You mentioned the attribution studies, and I want to ask you about that. But before we jump to that, um, it's interesting that during the California fires, a lot of observers, a lot of media observers, including the Columbia Journalism Review, were pointing out that most news organizations were failing to connect the fires to climate change. Um, do you agree with them that news organizations should make the climate connection to news events 
like the ones you've mentioned, more explicit? Well, I think it depends on what type of media you're talking about. Like any industry, we're all very different from each other. So I think I don't know that particular report from the Columbia Journalism Review that you're talking about, but I, I tend to think that's likely focusing a lot on TV news. And TV and cable news, you know, they have very small um, time windows to talk about issues. And so I think it can be difficult for these um, producers to allocate the time for a scientist to come on and say, well, you know, wildfires have been happening, rising temperatures are making forests drier and therefore more susceptible to um, more extreme wildfires. It's just a level of nuance that can be very difficult to come across, even in written form. But I do think written journalism uh, has been making the connection. But but I do want to caution that I think it's important not to to you know, to acknowledge that not every piece of extreme weather is is exacerbated by climate change. The analogy that I use is um, climate change is like diabetes for the planet. So it doesn't create new things that weren't existing before. They just make existing things worse than they were before. Right. So you, in the column, you say you're hesitant to make sweeping statements about extreme weather and rising global temperature, but the evidence in the area is indeed mounting what is it? What's behind your hesitation? Just that for a couple of reasons. One, I, I try to, you know, do my own personal research on these issues before I write about it. And, and this particular column wasn't about that particular issue, although I can um, I have done columns in the past connecting uh, climate change to extreme weather uh, last year during uh, Hurricane Harvey or I guess two years ago now. And. The other reason why is because this issue, climate change, is so polarized. In fact, polling shows it is the most polarizing issue in America. That I think it's important the media makes sure to remind readers that we're not saying every weather incident is climate change. I think that readers can get a little bit tired of seeing that. And it's, it's also a talking point that Republicans, some Republicans and some others who dispute the science, point out. And so... It's a little bit of humility on behalf of the media to make sure to go the extra length to say, while wildfires have always occurred, they're getting, you know, scientists will say they're getting worse because of uh, drier forests caused by um, rising temperatures and, and hotter weather. Um, again, it's a level of nuance that can be difficult to, to, to get across, but I, I continue to try. So um, somebody suggested that I ask you about the obligation that journalists feel to present two sides of the story. I'm not sure this is as much of an issue as it used to be several years ago, but if you're writing about the, um, the science of climate change, is it necessary then to give time to people who deny the science on climate change? What's your take on that? I do think the media uh, is has been a better on that front, particularly the written journalism, um, to not give equal credence to somebody who just wholesale rejects the science. I did a, a piece for Axios recently, um, just the headline was something like Trump's pipeline of climate misinformation. And I reached out to some of the 
the most ardent people who are rejecting the science. And uh, I said that I was going to include them in a story, listing them as one of the people who have been close to the administration who are really rejecting of, of the science. And in my conversations with them, I, I told them that I was not going to include any sort of scientific rebuttals that they had. And you can imagine that created an afternoon of very interesting and often tense phone calls uh, because, it, you know, it is my prerogative as a journalist to make sure that these people know that they're going to be mentioned. It's what I call no surprises journalism, something I learned at The Wall Street Journal that I definitely keep with me today. And so I don't present that side. But in this day and age, with Trump being influenced by these types of people, we can't ignore them. And then one other thing about this both sidesism, which I think is, is a really important issue, um, with the rise of the uh, the Green New Deal, um, a, you know, a broad progressive policy championed by progressive Democrats, you know, I've been covering that significantly. But I've also uh, recently went to some press conferences hosted by Republicans to criticize the Green New Deal. And the media uh, um, attendance at these conferences are far less than they have been with the the original Green New Deal press press conferences. But I think it's important to go to these events because it is important to to show that there is this faction of people who don't support it, and we can get into why. But nonetheless, I do think it's important. So it is something that I I think about um, quite a lot. While we're on the topic of polarization, you mentioned in your column that. While Trump denies basic science, Obama sometimes exaggerated the impacts of climate change. What are you referring to there? Well, I covered the entire Obama administration. And, you know, as I said in, in, in my piece that, you know, you know, sometimes exaggerations by Obama wasn't nearly as bad, of course, is not comparable to, to what Trump is doing today. But um, a couple of instances just where Obama would really reflexively say, you know, this is climate change. We need to, we need to address climate change because of this extreme weather. Um, and it goes back to what I was saying about trying to to include the nuance, even though it may not um, be what will get the most retweets. I do think it's important, and and it's something that I hear privately from a lot of Republicans. Who, by the way, most Republicans are privately grappling with how to be more public on this issue in a sort of acknowledging of the science way. But nonetheless, a lot of them say that they feel like Obama and some Democrats have gone too far to the left. And so I don't, you know, I don't necessarily agree or disagree with that. But nonetheless, I think it's important to point out that sometimes Democrats do exaggerate the science. Even though Donald Trump seems to still be finding access to climate denialism, it seems to me that climate denialism is less of a phenomenon than it used to be five or 10 years ago. And there could be a number of reasons for that. A lot of, um, a lot of it took place, I think, in the comments sections of online media, and a lot of those comments sections have disappeared. Um, or it could be something you mentioned in your column that climate change is taken more seriously now by the public. And as you make that point, you also point out that in many ways, media is a reflection of society. So it, it polling shows that the public is increasingly acknowledging the issue and seeing it as a threat. So that may be a motivator for the media to cover it more as well. So I'm a little worried about that idea because it suggests that the public's interests lead the media 
somewhat? Do we let polling influence what we cover? Are you saying that you're concerned that we're that the media is just covering what people think should be covered? Yeah, it, um, I'm not concerned about it personally, but it's just kind of like an issue with uh, journalism historically, I think. How much do we give people the information that they should have, and how much do we give them um, the information that they want, right? The difference between, say, consequence and interest. And if we're covering climate change now because people are more interested in it, you could look at it this way, too. Should we have been covering it more when they were less interested in it? I'm just interested in your view of that connection between public interest and what the media, how the media responds to it. Yeah, that's, that is really interesting. I, I guess a couple of points. One, on, on your comment about climate denialism being less of a thing, I certainly agree that it is. I think by quantity, there are fewer people and therefore articles and, and things like that written about stories just muddling the science. However, given uh, Trump's position, I think denialism is taking on a greater influence because President Trump, you know, fits into that category. So, and then on on how the media is a reflection of society, I think, well, number one, if, if we, the media covered what the what people really wanted it would just be you know cat videos and and things so when i say that there's growing interest in climate change it's obviously relatively speaking climate change re remains um pretty far down on the list of, of people's priorities um in terms of what they want congress to address but i think about this a lot in terms of how my position and my beat has changed over the decade and i think part of it is I cover, you know, the release of polling, the re release of reports and protests and, and all of that, which is, of course, wrapped up in climate, ch um, wrapped up in climate change and wrapped up into what would make a, a news event. The other side is, is what I think is important. And, and in fact, I, within the climate change energy realm, I, I do a lot of reporting on sort of wonky topics like technology that can capture carbon emissions um, from either the sky or a coal plant. Now, that technology is considered essential to addressing the issue, but it's something that doesn't really uh, get a lot of interest from the mass public because it's just one level too detailed. And But I still cover it because I think it's important. Um, and so I think what will be really interesting and telling is going into the presidential race, whether the cable news shows, which have already ticked up a little bit in their climate coverage, whether that increases because it is an increasing focus of at least the, the Democratic candidates. So you mentioned that um, climate change is still pretty far down on the public list of priorities, but it is rising on Wall Street's list of priorities. That was a big difference we saw at the two um, really major climate conferences, Copenhagen in 2009, Paris in 2015. Big business really showed up in Paris, worried about the issue and ready to talk about it. Uh, is this being pushed mostly by investors, and what's their concern? That's definitely a, a trend that I've been covering quite a lot in just the last couple of years. Uh, it's, it's being driven a lot by investors, but I do think all of these things are connected, right? The, the greater awareness, the protests to things like, you know, the Keystone XL pipeline or the Dakota Access pipeline. I tend to think those projects, you know, are largely symbolic, and they, they should not 
take on the entire um, issue of climate change. But nonetheless, they galvanize the public. And investors are included in the public. So I think this is all connected. But nonetheless, I do think you see big asset managers like BlackRock starting to push these companies a little bit more um, to acknowledge these issues. And I think that's one of the reasons why you're seeing oil and natural gas companies coming to the table somewhat cautiously, but a couple have even put down money to lobby for a carbon tax here in Washington. That's significant. Uh, it's not that much money, relatively speaking, but it's, it's, it's a big shift from the last decade. And so I think you're seeing sort of multiple forces coming down on these big uh, energy companies who I think are really pivotal to any sort of policy getting through Washington. I think these companies have so much money that you can't get policy around them. So my theory of the matter is, and whether you love or hate the oil companies, you'll have to negotiate with them. And and some people would disagree with that, but that's just how I read the landscape. When um, corporate interests start getting involved in climate action, how do you separate the greenwashing from more substantive actions? Yeah, that's something I definitely uh, hear from people on Twitter, for example, when I do stories about what the oil companies are doing. And I think we're past the point of greenwashing in most instances. I think these companies are starting to see two things. They're starting to see the opportunities um, and competitive advantage with some of these uh, renewable energy technologies. And number two, they're seeing a threat to their business. And so... They're making these moves for business reasons, not because they want to save the planet. Uh, I would say that all of the moves um, by any and all oil and gas companies are still a very small part of the overall business. And so that's something I always add in my stories um, for context. But the shift is real and is tangible, and it will probably still never be enough for a lot of environmentalists. You started covering energy during the fracking boom, I believe, and you mentioned in your column that that boom has matured now, and I was intrigued that you say we should now turn our attention to the long-term impacts of that energy boom, including climate change. What are you seeing when you look at those long-term impacts? Yeah, this was one of the, the drivers of my changing beat that is probably the most subjective. Uh, because, of course, there's still a lot of great coverage out there about the oil boom. Um, you know, my former employer, the Wall Street Journal, just did this great story about how, you know, um, barbers in an oil town in Texas are making, you know, $180,000. Uh, so, and that's an interesting story. You could have written that story in 2012 in Williston, North Dakota. Um, and, and I spent time in Williston, North Dakota. I think it was 2012 in, in Colorado. And at that time, I was covering issues like, you know, truck traffic and um, people's concerns about um, spills and more local environmental impacts. As the oil and gas boom matured, you began to see some environmental pushback against um, the increase in natural gas. And um, one report that ended up being highly um, criticized for being inaccurate um, out of Cornell University was actually was the first sort of volley in the big fight over methane emissions, which methane is a potent greenhouse gas that's the primary component of natural gas. And so that's that was a few years ago, and now you're seeing more and more focus about methane emissions and the broader climate change impact. 
And so I think it's just an evolution um, in a storyline that will really never go away. I should be remiss if I didn't mention that there's also significant geopolitical um, impacts happening here as well um, in terms of how the um, how America is the world's biggest oil producer and really, you know, making OPEC um, really have to change the way it does business. So there's so many stories here. And I've chosen to focus more on the climate change and energy uh, combination uh, just because I find it to be particularly fascinating. So another point you bring up in your column is a shift in newsroom priorities. And I'm hoping we can embark from that on a little bit of a behind the scenes look at energy journalism. Um, you mentioned the Wall Street Journal is, is running a series on climate change, but was less interested in it when you were there. And Axios, Axios gives you more latitude than you had at the journal. Um, I'm curious about not just latitude, but also attitude, the newsroom culture. Has the shift from the culture of the Wall Street Journal to the culture of Axios affected the way you see the news on your beat? I'm not sure about that. It's, it's sometimes difficult for me to extract what is the main driving factor from when I left the Wall Street Journal in the beginning of 2017 to Axios because there was so much changing at that time, right? There was Trump um, getting into office. There was the oil and gas companies really started to be more outspoken on this. There's the investor pressure. Um, so all of these things converged uh, at around the same time. And so, but I do think um, it's hard to sort of think about a negative here, what I would be covering if I was at the Wall Street Journal. But I certainly think Axios has given me the freedom to focus on what I want, which is sort of this nexus of energy and climate change. Because I think these two issues are, you really can't separate them out. Although those energy stories and those climate stories, I tend to focus on on the cross-section of those two. And when I was at the Wall Street Journal, I was responsible for doing so many things, it was hard for me to, to really drill down into one area. Um, and I do think Again, over this same time period, the Wall Street Journal is, is now doing a series on climate change. And, and I think that's one of many pieces of evidence you have out there that shows that the media is covering this issue more. So I'm also curious about the, what it was like for you to shift from the Wall Street Journal, which I have a sense that the journal tends to write long, to the sort of bullet point approach that was favored by Axios. Was that a difficult transition for you as a writer? Not particularly, uh, because what I really like about the Axios style is that it forces you to cut out all the BS and fluff that you might have put in other stories. Of course, that's not um, at all what I'm saying, that there is in other stories. Other stories don't necessarily have that. But it, it forces me to focus and really make sure that I know what I'm trying to say. And it's funny. Um, I find that a lot of other reporters don't seem to like our format, but I have had near literally universal praise on the format from readers, which is, of course, our mission is to put readers first, not, you know, other reporters who are a very tiny, unfortunately, shrinking percentage of our population. So I think I think people really like that. And I think it's for me, I've never been the type of reporter that loves to write long form 
you know, two, three thousand words. That's never been something um, I've really liked. Uh, I'm more of I like to analyze things and peel back the onion and see how things work. But I can be short about it because I want people to read my stories. <laughs> and unfortunately, we've seen a lot of readers drop off after a few hundred words, um, if that. So, so that's what I've, I've, I actually really like the format. I don't think, you know, you take out what we call the axioms, which is the, the, bolded sentence, the bolded part of the sentence in the beginning of most paragraphs. You take that out and you take out the bullet points and it's basically a normal story. We've just made it easier for the reader to, to digest. Through the formatting. I watched a panel discussion that you were on um, I think it was the Atlantic Council, and you mentioned a column that you were writing on 45Q, which is the carbon capture tax credit. I think you said you had something like 97 pages of typed notes that you distilled down into the 800-word column. And I'm really curious about that approach because I think in this, in the modern era, a lot of reporters don't have the economic support to do that much background on a single column. And I wonder, too, if that approach is something of a legacy from your uh, Wall Street Journal days, and if you feel like it'll change it all. In, um, I have the sense that Axios is a more dynamic interface with readers than the journal. Do you, do you feel like you're more in an elevator conversation at Axios than in like a lecture hall? which is maybe the more traditional style of journalism? I think Axios could really be adapted to any sort of environment, be it an elevator or a lecture hall. I think sort of the cadence of my job here at Axios is I do have my weekly column, which sometimes can be, you know, a a steep uh, lift. Um, The week that we're recording this, I I didn't have a column idea this morning, and, and now I think I do. And it's a Thursday, so I need to get myself in gear. Um, But, you know, that column you mentioned with the 96 pages of notes, I think I might have reported that out a couple of weeks. Uh, So it wasn't that long. But, of course, I had a lot of conversations. And it was just this really complicated IRS tax credit um, discrepancy that I wanted to make sure I got right. And so I tend to over-report, which I think is the best way to do it, to make sure you have it right. And I remember some people, when I made that comment, some people thought that, oh, you're wasting so much material. And I don't see it as a waste because, frankly, I don't think people are going to read more than a few hundred words on carbon capture tax credit, even though I think it's incredibly important because it's this intersection of what oil companies are doing on a tax credit dealing with climate change. I mean, it's everything that Washington is grappling with, um, all wrapped up in one issue. So, so I think, you know, that's just part of journalism. And I think ultimately Axios can do both short and long form just in a different way than say the, the wall street journal has. Um, we're running low on time, but I've got two more questions. I really want to ask you the first one. Um, a few years ago, a former colleague of mine told me that Two beats had come open at the daily newspaper she was working at, City Hall and Energy. And which beat did I think she should take? And I said, Energy, of course. Energy's the future. Energy's going to keep you busy for the rest of your life. There's amazing things happening with energy, and this connection to climate change is vitally linking energy to quality of life and survival in many ways. So she took my advice, 
And a few months later, I asked her how it was going, and she, she told me the learning curve is really steep. And I was reminded that that is true. When you cover energy, you have to assimilate some fundamentals in a diverse bunch of sciences. You have to have some sense how nuclear fission works, maybe nuclear fusion these days. There's a bunch of different battery technologies it's necessary to become familiar with, photovoltaics, petroleum, hydrogen. Every one of them has its own field of science and a sort of steep literature of its advantages and challenges. And um, I know you became an energy reporter after interviewing T. Boone Pickens, the famous natural gas magnate who was also an advocate for nuclear energy and renewable energy. When you made that switch to energy, how did you tackle that learning curve? I would say kind of like eating an elephant, um, which is one bite at a time. Um, it, it's, it's a continual process. Uh, just uh, recently, I spent a week learning about um, OPEC, and it's the impact that legislation pending in Congress would have on that the, the oil group if it passed and would give the Justice Department the ability to sue OPEC. And I really didn't know anything about that because it was just never an issue that came across, you know, the top of the agenda of my mind. And so, you know, even today, I'm, I'm still learning about a lot of these issues. And that's what really um, draws me to this. I just find it so fascinating that I can dive into, you know, an issue I know nothing about and then have a story about it in two weeks. Um, of course, it takes a lot of um, phone calls and, you know, questions that might sound stupid, but it's better to ask them um, before you publish than after. Uh, and I remember for a while there early on in covering this beat, which has been about a decade, I avoided the whole issue of ethanol because it's so confusing. I just avoided it. Finally, I, I had to come to grips with the fact that I can't ignore ethanol. And, I, you know, I know enough about ethanol now, but it still confuses the hell out of me sometimes. Um, the way the markets work that trade the credits that deal with that the, the government mandate on that issue. So, you know, it's a continual process. And that's why I love this issue over, say, you know, pure politics, for example. Uh, I also, of course, I think it is incredibly important. And I think the idea that Climate change is, is a humongous uh, challenge for the world. And at the same time, energy, we all have it, we all need it, and we all take it for granted. Uh, particularly in this era of low energy prices, I think people take it for granted. And so I think it's important that I, I highlight that as well. I did a column shortly after this tragic natural gas explosions in Massachusetts. It got very little coverage because there was a hurricane happening at the same time. I think only one person died or injured, but it was just this crazy, um, you know, 40-odd explosions in houses over natural gas. And it was just, it, it, it got me thinking, and so I wrote a column about how, you know, energy is a, a risk that we all take, but it's a necessary risk. And so, um, anyways, that's sort of a long answer to, to your question about why I think this is such uh, an important issue to cover. It's also something I really enjoy. Uh, and I think a bonus is that I do feel like I have relatively good job security in an, in an industry that's otherwise uh, struggling, that is journalism. And now you're not only a successful energy reporter, but you're the inaugural journalism fellow for EPIC. What does a journalism fellow do for an energy policy institute? 
Yeah, well, I'm very excited to to be working with with uh, the university. I mean, incredibly smart people. Michael Greenstone um, and I have had really great conversations about all of these topics. Uh, and so what I do is uh, help sort of think about and frame and then moderate a lot of the events that that the think tank does and then offer my me as a sounding board for podcast ideas and and, and things like that. So, yeah, it's been really great. And I'll be doing some more collaboration with, with Michael in the coming months. So stay tuned. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Amy, we'd better let you go get started on that column. Yeah, well, thank you so much. This has been great. And thanks to all of you who are listening. Make sure to subscribe to Off the Charts wherever you get your podcasts, including on Epic's website at epic.uchicago.edu. Until next time, I'm Jeff McMahon.